Good morning. You got me? Yeah, there it is. How we doing? Good. Some of you are. It's good to be up here, and I have to start with a confession, as I often do. Uh, my confession is this. Tomorrow's New Year's Eve, and I hate New Year's Eve, and I hate New Year's. It's my least favorite holiday. Some people get really excited about these holidays, and I, I can't stomach them. I can't stand them. And my problem is I become attached to the year I'm living in because I spend, you know, 365 days with it, and then I'm expected to just run headlong, open-armed into this new year that I know nothing about, and it feels kind of disloyal. And like this past year, 2012 was a great year um, for me. We beat the Mayans, and if you're sitting here, you did too. So that was good. Cardinals had a great season, so that was great. There's something else. I got married. That's, that's the thing I can't forget. All in all, there's a lot of really good memories, a lot of good things. And there were some bad things too, but I came to know the year. I came to expect what the year had for me. I got real comfortable with the year. I don't want to go into the next year. I don't know what it brings. I don't know what it's going to do to me. I'm a little scared of 2013. And then there's the resolutions. I'm not good at this either. Some of you, I don't know. Some of you might be better than me. My big resolution last year, uh, before 2012, was to do 200 push-ups the entire year. And I thought about it yesterday. I'm at 37. So I got my day lined up tomorrow to try and knock out the rest of them. I don't do the resolution thing well. And I, when I was told I was speaking on this day, I started to really investigate my own heart. And I realized that it's not so much about the new year I don't like. And it's not so much about resolutions I don't like. It's about change. I don't like change. And this is problematic because as a believer in Jesus Christ, change is our ultimate calling. We are to change masters. We are to change our citizenship. We are to change who we follow. We are to change the pattern that we live by. Ultimately, we are to change the world around us by being light and by being salt. We have to change ourselves. And we can't ultimately change ourselves in any lasting way. The only person who can do that is the person and work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God living inside us. And I don't do so well with that. And so what happens is I set all these resolutions and, you know, my resolution to exercise more, my resolution not to drink 80 ounces of soda, or my resolution to have some big lofty reading plan all fall by the wayside and I return to the status quo of my life. And that's not that big a deal if I'm talking about the physical life, if I'm talking about my emotional life. But to keep returning to the status quo of my spiritual life, that's problematic. That is a big deal. We can't keep returning to the status quo of our spiritual life, and many of us do that. Uh, a few weeks ago, I took my contact lenses out, and I realized that on them was a fuzz. Like, it would be on film. It was a, like growing mold. And the problem was they're two-week lenses, and because they're my last ones, I've been wearing them for about a year. I'm supposed to trade them out, it's two weeks. And, and my vision's been fuzzy, and actually the contact lens itself has grown fuzzy. And I have a kind-hearted, skilled optometrist just waiting for me to make an appointment. He can square it away, but I don't do it because there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a copay. And for us to change spiritually, there's going to be a cost, and it's going to cost us our sin. And to do that, it costs us our comfort. It costs us our habits. And ultimately, it's going to cost us our very selves. So we don't repent. That's why we don't repent. Christ-likeness is our ultimate goal. If you're a believer in Christ, your goal is to be like Christ. And you can say, well, the ultimate goal is to glorify God. But we do that by being like Christ. He glorified God more than any other human on earth. He became human, glorified God. So our goal is to be like Christ. But the problem is, though our nature has changed and our allegiance has changed, we still live in this flesh. And we live in this sinful world and we're constantly being drawn 
to this sinful world and into it. So we're at battle all the time. And daily I lose this battle and succumb to sin. And when I do that, I am the farthest away from Christ that I can possibly be. Because what was Christ? Christ was perfect. Christ was sinless. And so when I sin and I fall into that sin, Christ is over here. I'm taking a big step this way. And I lose this battle all the time. But conversely, if we look at that another way, when am I most like Christ then? When I repent. When his blood makes me pure. When he changes me. And in this repentance, I see God's holiness, as Ryan was talking about in Isaiah. I see God's holiness. I can then look at my fallenness. And then hence, I experience the grace that reconciles the two. And it's only when we repent when we see this. So without repentance, I'm missing something vital, my growth and knowledge of God. Repentance is key. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at an oft-forgotten and neglected biblical character. A character we know the name of but don't know too much about. And then I want to look at his never-forgotten upgrade. So I'm going to begin with, with Saul. And as we talk, I don't want this to turn into a, a, a scholarly study of men that lived thousands of years ago. And I don't want this to really be about me or the rapidity with which I'm going to speak because we're going to go fast. I don't want this to be about the person sitting next to you or more likely the person who isn't sitting next to you, who you think should be. What this needs to be about is God. And from God, it needs to trickle down to your heart. And in that way, we might actually affect some change in our lives and quit living in our status quo spirituality. But first, Saul. The reason I want to talk about Saul is because Saul is a man who hated repentance. And he hated repentance for the exact same reason that I hate repentance. And probably for the exact same reason that some of you, some of you might be bold enough to admit that you hate repentance. He probably hated it for the same reason that you hate repentance too. And it's the thing that's antithetical to repentance. It's the villain to the hero of repentance, pride. Pride is the reason why many of us don't repent. And so if we go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to throw some of these verses on the screen. We're going to jump around a bit. But we're going to look at some, some moments in Saul's life. But first in chapter 9, we get the introduction. And in verse 1, it says that there was a man of Benjamin named Kish, and that he was a mighty man of valor. And then verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul. Our first introduction to Saul, a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. So Saul was really good looking. To be the most good, think of that, if you were the most good looking person in the United States and a book recorded that you were. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Saul was good looking. He was tall. He had it going on. If we use today's vernacular, he had swagger. He was the man. He had his chest puffed out. And we see our first glimpse of Saul. He's good looking. But we also see this. He has some humility left because his father's donkeys are missing. In in verse 3, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. And he goes. And so he has a little bit of obedience. He takes his servant and they go and they look. It's a funny introduction to a king. He's introduced by looking for the donkeys. And so in verse 4, he's going, he's looking, he can't find the donkeys anywhere. And then verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys. He'll become worried for us. So Saul's even got a little humor to him. He's kind of cracking a joke there, but saying we need to get going. And his servant said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in the city, and the man is held in honor, and all that he says surely comes true. Let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. So the man he's talking about is Samuel, and already we see a problem with Saul. And the problem with Saul is he doesn't know Samuel's name. 
The servant has to say there's this man of God. And then he has to explain the man of God. He's very wise. He might know what's going on. He kind of has to dumb it down for Saul because Saul's not concerned about the things of God because he operates in his own pride. This shows us that already in Saul's young career, he has a pride issue. And it's, it's subtle, but it's there. And then Saul even he goes on and he says, well, we can't go there. We, what will we bring the man? What kind of gift? We, our bread is gone from the sack. There's no present to bring him. We can't really go. What do we have to offer him? Like he's trying to, to get out of it. He doesn't really know Samuel. He's not that interested in things of God. This would be like if you have a Catholic friend and your Catholic friend says, yeah, there's this guy, he wears a bunch of white clothes and he's got a big funny hat, rides in a car. I can't, if your Catholic friend doesn't know the Pope or the Pope's name, he's probably not that Catholic. And that's the thing with Saul. He's a child of God, but he operates completely God as himself. He stiff arms God. And we see a little glimpse of that here. Finally, the servant says, hey, we should go, we should go. And Saul says, all right, we'll go. We'll go check it out. And, and that's usually how we operate because in pride, we trust ourselves. We rely on ourselves. We look to ourselves for all our answers. Saul thought he could find those donkeys on his own. But oftentimes, our way is option A. God's way is a reluctant audible. It's like the play we don't want to run. And finally, we'll be like, all right, we'll try it. Probably won't succeed, but all right, we'll do. That's what Saul's doing here. He says, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. We'll see. And the other thing you notice about Saul here, he's willing to trust God with donkeys, but as we look later in his story, he doesn't trust God with anything else. And I think in this room probably, and, and in my own heart, I, I often see non-repenters in the church, and usually there's two types of non-repenters. And the first type is kind of like Saul, and this is kind of like me in a lot of ways. We trust God only in the little things. We'll trust him with the donkeys, but not with the horses. We'll trust them with our neighbor's health. Yeah, we'll pray for our neighbor, tell them to trust God. But when it affects us, when it's our own health, when we get told we have cancer, we're not trusting God. No, he can't handle my cancer. He might be able to handle my neighbor's, but not mine. And in speaking today, if I was told I'm going to speak to a room full of 10 people, I'd probably say, yeah, God can handle this. Eh, not much preparation needed. God's got this. I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to pray. But if I'm told I'm speaking to a thousand people, boy, I better just harness all my intellect. I better study. I better do this. I better do that. All of a sudden, it becomes all on me. The onus is on me because God can't handle a thousand people. I better do all I can. Reeks of pride. And then the other type of non-repenter is the one who only trusts God in big things. I'll knock out the little things myself. So if my family's got to uproot and move, yeah, we'll, we'll pray and we'll do things as a family. We'll really seek God's will in that. But how I raise my kids day to day, I don't need to, I don't need to mess God into that. I don't need to trifle that. God, God doesn't have time for it. I doubt God's ever looked down at his creation when you do that and say, oh, how courteous, thank you. And he's like playing shuffleboard with the angels because you saved him time. He's got time for the little things. And when you say both of those out loud, both of them just reek of pride. God can't handle the big things. Or God can't, he doesn't have enough time or wherewithal to handle all the little things. It's just prideful. What we need to become in 2013 are the type of people who trust God always. And some of us trust God real well with our successes. If things are going well, our family's going well, uh, the job's going well, we'll trust God with that. But do we trust him with our fail failures? And here's a better question. Do we trust him even with our sins? We need to be the type of people who trust God with our successes, our sins, and everything in between. If we go back to 1 Samuel 9, and you don't have to go here, you can, but verse 15, it turns out that as, as Saul is looking for donkeys, God is looking for a king. There's some great parallelism here. And he has chosen Saul beforehand, and Saul doesn't know it. So Saul goes to the holy man, and he's chosen as king. And what's interesting is there's tribes in Israel, and the lowest tribe was Benjamin. 
Okay? The king should not come from that tribe. And that's the tribe Saul's from, but yet he's the one who's chosen. This would be like going to a, a, trying to get a job and you need a PhD and you don't even have a college degree and you get hired. You're the CEO of a company, you never went to college, you didn't finish high school. And yet you overstep all these people who are more well qualified than you. That's what happens to Saul. And instead of Saul seeing that as God is big, God is mighty, God will have his way, he sees it as I'm tall, I'm handsome, I'm Saul. And now I've arrived. He's going to be king. But not yet. It happens as it often does in the Bible. It's going to happen in chapter 11. Usually there's a big hero moment for the people called of God. And Saul has his big hero moment in chapter 11. Verse 1, it says, Now Nahash the Ammonite, who henceforth all called the bad guys. The Ammonites were the bad guys. There's too many syllables, so I'll just say bad guys. Came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. We'll call them the good guys. And all the men of the good guys said to the bad guys, Hey, make a covenant and leave us alone. They besieged them. They weren't letting food in. They weren't letting trade out. It was a bad deal. They said, Please leave us alone. And the bad guy said, Okay, okay, we will. Verse 2, We'll leave you alone. We'll make a covenant with you. And on this condition, we'll leave you alone that we can gouge out the right eye of every one of you. I've made deals in my life. I've bought used cars. If someone requires a body part, it's not a good deal. Walk away. Biblical lesson 101. Walk away when it requires a body part. That's what they're saying here. We'll make a deal with you. It's going to require a body part. This is not a good deal. And so the, the good guys get together, and they have a little talk about this. And they say, well, what do we do? And first they had to say, why do they want our right eye? And we're given the answer, but there's two answers. One we're not given. One reason is because of tactical reasons. Without a right eye, you couldn't have archers. If no one's got a right eye, you can't have archers. You can't defend your walled city. You also can't go hand-in-hand in combat because when you hide behind the shield, if you peek out with your good eye to try and get someone with the sword, your shield's not covering you, you're in trouble. No hand-to-hand combat. It would make them defenseless for ages to come. But then he says another thing in there. He says, I will make it a reproach on all of Israel. He wants to turn the people of Israel into a punchline. Instead of being a people with a great God, he wants to make them the people who have one eye, the Cyclops nation. He wants to make them a laughingstock. He wants to make them defenseless. He wants to, to, to get them and make them look terrible and make them a joke to all the other people and defame God. So the elders get together. They're having a meeting. They're discussing, why do they want our eye? What do we do with it? I think in the meeting at some point, they probably had a vote, and someone probably said, all those in favor say aye, and they're like, oh, don't say aye. You know, it's probably an awkward moment. And they decide, you know what? We'll go talk to these people. We don't have a way out. There's more people. They're more violent. They're going to beat us, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell them it's a good deal. We'll take the deal, but we're going to ask for a week. That's what they do. They say, give us one week We're going to send out messengers. We're going to try and get help. If we get help, we're going to fight you. If we don't get help, you can have our eyes. That would be a tough week. Just waiting to have your eye gouged out. And they didn't think help was going to come. And here we see our hero. Verse 5, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. So God had called him to be king, but he hadn't been made king yet. He was just farming. He was biding his time. And he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? And so they told him what was happening with the good guys who were getting ready to lose their eyes. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. So what he does is he rallies all the people to himself, and he has a big pep rally and gets everyone fired up, and he goes and he attacks the bad guys, and they scatter them, and they defeat them, and, and the eyes are saved. The eyes have it. They got to keep their eyes. They won the day. Saul is now lifted up on their shoulders. He's carried out of the stadium like Rudy. He's the man. He's the king. He's the hero. 
and he's prideful. It goes straight to his head. And the reason I say it goes straight to his head because we can look at his career. And what goes on after this is he's made king and he goes and he fights several wars. And in these wars, he has several victories. But in these wars also, he has several blunders. Mistake after mistake. So victory after victory, mistake after mistake. But they're still winning. His son's doing well. His family's doing well. And I think this is an issue. And we can take a lesson here, an important lesson. Saul doesn't repent. And I think one of the reasons is he looks around at the results and the circumstances and things are going pretty well. And I think a lot of us do that too. Like I have some unrepentant sin in my heart. I have some anger issues. But man, my family's going well and things are going pretty good at work. God must be okay with those things. You hear about it with churches sometimes. A a pastor is going, the church is going great. The pastor is bringing people in. The messages are great. The church is booming. They're going to multiple services and multiple venues. Everything's just slant. And then all of a sudden, after, you know, 10 years, it comes out the pastor's having an affair. It's been going on for some time. And people say, how did you do that? Why, how did you keep that going? And he will say this, well, people were still getting saved. The church was still growing. So I thought maybe it was Okay. Maybe God was okay, or maybe God didn't want to deal with it yet. What you're doing when you do that, when you let your circumstances externally dictate the internal condition of your heart, you're putting your heart at the center of the universe. And if things are going well in my community, God must be okay with my heart, even though my heart's wicked. And if you look around the world, you'll see all kinds of people who have risen to positions of power, who are mighty. They have all kinds of things circumstantially going well in their life. But it's not an indicator that their heart's okay. We can't let our outside circumstances dictate our need for internal repentance. That can't be. Our need for internal repentance is we're messed up. The Bible tells us we're messed up. We're people. We're humans. Just because things are okay doesn't mean you're okay. It means God's okay. You need to repent, and I need to repent. And so if we keep going with with Saul, it's a sad we can't go through everything, but, but Saul continues to mess up, continues to mess up. We're going to look at one of those mess ups. We can't look at all of them, but um, chapter 14, verse 24 says this. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. They had enemies all around them. For Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now I'm not a big military guy, if you can't tell. And uh, I've never led, you know, any combat missions or anything like that. But I did coach women's soccer for about three years. And I never once said, hey, if we don't win, we're not going to eat until we win. Because I knew the, the girls played better if they had eaten that day. And that's the only correlation you can get between women's soccer and battle. But there you go. There it is for you. But you got to eat. These guys were physically in battle. They were fighting. They were famished, and they were trying to defeat enemies that were big, strong, trying to kill them, and they were hungry. you got to take care of your body. Tactically, this was a terrible decision, but even worse, it was a bad decision because he didn't inquire of God. He didn't say, God, what should I do? God, should I put this curse on? No, he just said, cursed be the man who eats before I am avenged. What this is like is if uh, some of you are married, if, if you're a guy here and you're married, this would be like this week sometime, your wife's out, she's at work, or she's dealing with the kids or whatever. She gets home at like 6, and she comes in, and you just have all your guys over. You're watching the bowl game on TV. And as soon as she walks in, you say, hey, honey, I was just telling the guys, I've been telling them for the last hour or so that you're going to make us a bunch of chicken wings when you get home. So you can get in there and get the chicken wings going. That's not going to go well. Because if she makes the chicken wings, 
she kind of looks like a jerk for listening to you. If she doesn't, she looks like a jerk. You've kind of boxed your wife in and put her in a really bad situation. And this is what Saul does to God, because God's the one who has to own up to the curse. So if a guy eats and God doesn't smote the guy, it looks like, you know, the king doesn't have power. But if God does smote the guy, he gives the power to Saul and not the God. It's a bad situation that Saul does here. And the other thing that's bad about this comment is you notice the end. No one's going to eat before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Pride. It's not about God. It's not about the people of Israel. It's not about other people. It's not about service. It's not about any of that. It's about me avenging my name for my sake, for my glory. His pride. Finally, Samuel. Okay, God's man has enough of this. And in chapter 15, it's all about Samuel approaching Saul and basically saying, Saul, you're awful. Here's all the ways. Let me count the ways of your awfulness. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. And I think Saul's just sitting there like in his recliner, just nodding. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And finally, it looks like he's going to repent. And this is in 1524. Saul's sitting there, he hears this whole rap sheet of the things he's done. And he says this. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Everyone's like, yes, finally. And we're going we're gonna to see Saul, you know, we're going to see his whole career change because finally he's repenting. We're going to see him start following the Lord. It sounds so good. And then he goes on. He says, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. Still sounds good. He probably just should have stopped right there. But he goes on. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. You've heard this before. I remember a few years ago, a football player hit someone who was walking across the street. He was an intoxicated NFL football player. I remember the, the, the apology they listed um, in the AP or whatever. It said, um, I'm very sorry that I hit this guy, but he was jaywalking. Well, that's not apology. That's not repentance. What is Saul doing here? This is the, the pay, raise, pay raise repentance. This is where you're getting ready to meet with your boss. You've been living in sin, living with sin. You know the meeting with your boss where you're going to find out if you get a raise, and all of a sudden you become real holy the night before. God, I'm sorry for everything. And then you go meet with your boss, find out if you get a raise or not, and then you go right back to your ways. This is false mock repentance is what Saul's doing. And then it gets even worse as if it could. He says in 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. What Saul is really after is a photo op with Samuel. Samuel is God, God's ambassador on earth. Samuel is God's representative on earth. And all Saul wants to do is shake his hand and let the Israelites see him shaking his hand. See, me and Samuel are good. Me and God are okay. He's not okay with God, but if he can dupe the people, they'll follow him. Because the people were kind of aware that he'd been blowing it. He just wanted to kiss the baby. He, wanted to, he was a politician. He wasn't repenting. He was politicking. And so Samuel says, Now, I'm not going to return with you. You rejected the word of the Lord. He's given a choice. Repent or keep walking in your ways. And like so many of us do, and like I do daily, I'm going to keep walking in my ways. I'm just going to keep on. I can fix this. I can make this right. If I just try hard enough, if I just do a little more. But man, I'm not going to repent. So he doesn't repent, and he just goes batty. The rest of the book, he's all over the place. And then we come to 28. It only gets worse for him. Again, he's operating out of unrepentant sin, and that sin is pride. Pride, 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 the whole book. Chapter 28, we're almost done with him. Verse 3 says this. 
Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel was saddened for him. And they go and bury him. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So he gets rid of all the fortune tellers. Samuel's dead, and he says, I'm going to make this right. I don't want people running to the wrong sources. I'm going to get these people out. Again, it looks like repentance. It looks like maybe he's seen uh, the, the path of his ways. Maybe he sees how he's been walking wickedly and under his own power. And then we get the truth. In verse 4, the Philistines had gathered, and they were camping. That's the enemies of the Israelites, Saul's people. And Saul was camping with his people. And then verse 5, when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. That doesn't sound like a guy who's trusting God. He looks at their number, he looks at their size, and he's shaking. And he's fearful. And the reason is because all of his trust is placed solely in himself. And by this point, he's realized, hey, I'm not that great. And yet he's placing all of his trust in himself. And some of us are doing that, even today. If you're looking at the world around you and your heart is trembling and you are afraid, you got a trust issue. And if you have a trust issue, I take it one step further, you have a pride issue. And yeah, your pride might tell you, hey, I'm not that good or I have some issues and that's why you have the fear, but still you're putting it all on you. And none of it's supposed to be on you. We're supposed to be trusting in God. This is not the heart of a leader. This is not the heart of someone who has a repentant heart. This is the heart of a proud man who knows himself at this point, doesn't like himself, but is unwilling to do anything about it. Then verse 6, he sees them. He decides to inquire of the Lord. He's like, why not? I haven't tried in a while. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. I wonder why either by dreams or by the prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, who is a fortune teller, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Didn't you just outlaw this? Like he just said, this cannot happen in my kingdom. Get them all out of here. And then a few verses later he says, Hey, can you find me one of those people? This is like a parent who tells his kid, Don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. And then one day knocks on the door and says, Hey, you know where I can get some drugs? And the worst part is the servant says, yeah, there's a fortune teller over on Indoor Street. Yeah, I know where one is. So this would be like your kid answering you, yeah, just go over to Henderson. And the parent's just being okay with that. High five and go. This is, it, this is problematic here. And that's what we do sometimes. We surround ourselves with people who are just going to be our yes people. We tell them about our sin or we tell them about the sin we're planning on doing. They say, yeah, yeah, you can do that sin there. Or, yeah, I'll help you do that sin. Come on, this will be great. He's surrounding himself with yes men. But people are just going to enable his prideful habit. And so he gets all dressed up. I, I imagine he's dressed like some kind of hobo or something. This is the king. And he's dressed to like, you know, puts on the fake beard or puts on, you know, whatever he has on. And he like hobbles in to talk to the fortune teller. Like, is this guy just derailed or what? And so he's talking to this fortune teller and he says, hey, God won't talk to me anymore. Can you bring up Samuel for me? Samuel's dead, but can you bring up like his spirit so I can talk with and even the fortune teller's like, what are you doing? Like, is this a trap? Like, you outlawed us. But she brings up Samuel, and in verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He's like, man, I was resting in peace. What's the deal? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed. The Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called you. What should I do? And Samuel says, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? 
And for some of us, we've taken on so much sin and we're operating so much in pride that we're supposed to be the allies of Christ. We're supposed to be the allies of God and we are operating as the adversary of God because God is always the adversary of sin. And so when we load our heart up with hidden sin, we're becoming the adversary of God. And yes, if you're saved and you're a believer in Christ, you're still a son of God because his promises are good and his promises are true. But in our day-to-day missional activity, we're an adversary of God because the sin that binds us, the sin that, that makes us the least Christ-like we can be in those moments. And then the tragic end of Saul is in First Chronicles. Kind of the last words we get about him. First Chronicles 10 says this. This is the end of Saul. After all these blunders, all these mistakes, all this lack of repentance, we come to 1 Chronicles 10, verse 4. The Philistines are all around. They're winning the war. They're winning the battle. It's not looking good for Saul. And Saul says to his armor bearer, this is just tragic. He says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Otherwise, these Philistines will come and they'll abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. The man who wouldn't repent, who never trusted God with his life, couldn't trust God with his death. There's a lot of stories of Christian martyrs who died good deaths because they saw the big picture and saw God and said, even in my death, even in my death, I trust you. Not Saul. Even in death, he could have repented. At that moment, just like Samson, Samson was, you know, done for. And he said, God, give me strength. God, I'm sorry. And he had this great firework ending. Saul could have had that. But even there at the end, he was unwilling because he was so blinded. Our spiritual, we were spiritually blind when we harbor sin. And he's just feeling around. He's got the fuzzy contacts. He's just feeling in his way around, groping around. And it's an ugly, tragic end. And the thing they wrote on his tombstone is in 13. He didn't really have a tombstone, but this is like the last words of Saul, his epitaph. The last things we hear about Saul. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David. The last thing we hear about Saul is, guy was unrepentant. God's, God's basically saying, the guy wasn't my man. The guy was not a man after my own heart. Why? Because of his sin? No. Because he wouldn't repent from his sin. God made us. He knows we sin. He knows we're in a fallen world. And that's why he's given us grace. And that's why Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. It's kind of like Saul had a debt paid for, and he carried the debt around in his pocket, stressed out about it, instead of just saying, hey, dude, that's paid for. Why are you worried about that bill that's due? It's been paid for. He wouldn't give that to God. And I can relate, because that's often what I do. The second guy I want to talk about real briefly, just a few minutes on him, because we don't need to talk about him, because we all know him. His name's David. He's the guy who took over. And the thing about David and Saul is, they're like the same guy. We're told they're both ultra-good-looking guys. They're both big, strong guys. They have a similar calling. They're called to the same position by the same guy, and they both were called out of lowly circumstances. Saul was a Benjamin, Benjaminite. They would never have called him. David, seven brothers. They said, no, 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 no to all the brothers. They said, you got anyone else? They said, we got one little scrub in the field named David. Samuel said, we'll take him. Lowly calling brought forth. They both had hero moments. David's, of course, we all know. It was Goliath. 
We say, well, Goliath's a bigger deal than Saul's. Well, not for the guys who got to keep their eyes. For those guys, Saul is their man. As people talk today about Michael Jordan, they don't care about LeBron James. They want Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. That's the way it is here. For these people, the guys who didn't lose their eyes, they're saying Saul's the hero. Saul's the guy. Look what Saul did for us. They both had these same hero moments. They both had military conquest. Their lives as young men were in battle all the time, and they were good commanders in some ways. They had kingship. They had looks. They had power. They even had a similar bout with sin. You could say that David's was worse. It happens in 2 Samuel 11. And I love the intro to that. It says, it was the springtime was the time when kings go to war. And then by the end of the verse we hear, but David stayed home. There's debate on why David stayed home. I think he stayed home because of pride. He had arrived. He had done well. The kingdom was thriving. Everyone loved him. So why not stay home? And I think he stayed home because of pride, because pride cometh before the fall, and we're about to see a big old fall in David's life. He doesn't go to war. He goes to the roof instead, and he looks, and he sees a beautiful woman. Finds out that woman's married, doesn't care. Takes her anyways, intimate with her. Gets her with child. And then he finds out who her husband is and, and, you know, pokes around. Gets him killed. Finds a way to murder him. So he's an adulterer, he's a murderer. All because of pride. Because he didn't go war. He didn't go do the things he was supposed to do. He didn't do the job that God had called him to do the way God had called him to do it. And so much like Saul's story, a person came into his life to speak truth. Samuel came to Saul and said, here's all the things you've done. Do you want to repent? Nathan does the same thing. Nathan comes to David and says, here's all the things you did. He does it in like a a parable type way. And David says, we should kill that guy. And Nathan says, it's you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent? David was put to a decision. And like so many people in the Bible, David shrugged when it was time to sin because of his pride. We see this with Eve. Remember Eve in the garden? She knew she wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. It said, do not eat. She grabbed the fruit. She ate the fruit. Shrugged. And what'd she do after she ate the fruit? Did she go repent? She went and hid in the bushes and hid from God. Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. And then God says, hey, where's your brother? And Cain said, uh, I don't know. We'll sin, but we won't repent. We're usually willing to sin, but we're not willing to repent because of our pride. Joseph's brothers knew they weren't supposed to sell their brother into slavery. They sell him into slavery. What do they do? They create a lie that they keep for years. And we see it with Saul. David was put to the same decision. A few months ago, I was reading a book called Robinson Crusoe. I didn't finish the book because I got the one line and I had to stop on the line. We're putting it up on the screen and it says, Man is... Well, man are not ashamed to sin, the way they phrase it in the book. Not ashamed to sin, yet are ashamed to repent. Isn't that the story of these people? Isn't that the story of us? We'll shrug at sin, but when it's time after the sin to repent, we run from it. We hide it. We stuff it. We insulate it. We cradle it. We're not ashamed to sin. We'll jump right in. But we are ashamed to repent. It's funny, I was telling someone I was going to speak today about Saul and David, and this person said this, and it's a person who knows the Bible real well. Well, that's cool. I don't know anything about Saul. And I thought that was so telling. I thought it was so telling that he said this because we don't know much about Saul. Because Saul wasn't that much like Christ. We know everything about David. David was a murderer. David committed adultery. But we know about David because David was willing to be like Christ in his repentance. You want to leave a legacy for your kid, learn to repent. Admit that you're wrong and trust God with that wrong. And we see David make his decision in Psalm 51. I'm going to read this psalm and we're almost done here. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 51. This is David right after the sin, right after he realizes what's going on. 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire the truth in the innermost being. What he's talking about there is how we deceive ourselves and how sin deceives us and blinds us and the fuzzy contacts and we can't see. You can't see when you're living in sin because you're separate from God and his truth. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. None of this is pointing the finger. None of this is saying, well, God, I'm sorry, but did you see Bathsheba? And God, I'm sorry, but Uriah, he was, I didn't like him anyway. And God, but I was the king. This is just pure contrite confession. He says this, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. Here's the sacrifice of God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So are we like David? Are we like Saul? And if you want to be like David, here's my challenge to you. Make a resolution to repent. It takes 21 days to make a habit. I'd say for the first 21 days of January, just see if you can make a resolution to say, God, search me. God, make me know wisdom in the innermost being. God, change me. God, make me a repentant person. I don't want to be a non-repenter. I don't want to be Saul. I want to be David. And some ways we can do that, first we can have accountability. David had a Nathan next to him. And sometimes God chooses to use his people to speak truth into our lives. Who's your Nathan? you have that? If you don't, would you get that? Because you're not going to do it without that. David didn't know. I mean, he knew he was sinning, but he wasn't going to repent. He would have kept walking that path had Nathan not set him down and said, listen, the choice was ultimately David's, but God used Nathan to show him his sin, to guide him by the Holy Spirit, to ignite the Holy Spirit in David. Do you have that? Saul, when he said, hey, I want a, a fortune teller, if he would have had Nathan around him to say, no, you don't. And here's why you don't. No, but he had a bunch of guys who said, yeah, that's where you get it. Do you have a Nathan? And the second thing you can do is clear the clutter. This is best shown through an illustration, but a guy was in my office. You saw the video. They were cleaning the desk. That was my desk because I like to keep clutter. And a guy was in my office. And he said, you know, I worked at P&G. I was a manager. And, and one rule we had is every time you pick up a piece of paper, you do something with it. So if the paper says call Scott, you pick up that paper, you call Scott, you leave a message or you talk to Scott, and then you throw it away. What if we did that with our sin? Instead of letting the little thing we saw on TV just fester in our hearts and turn into a lust problem that turns into eventually adultery or some other heinous thing, why don't we deal with that right away? Why don't we clean the clutter? Daily repentance. Because if we do that, we'll begin seeing our view of sin change through a better understanding of God, his holiness, and his grace. Let me say this. In repentance, we're not after moralism. There are a lot of good people in the world who aren't God people. We're after Christ-likeness. And if you seek Christ, you get moralism. 
You can't see Christ and not be a better husband, not be a better father, not be a better mother, not be a better son, not be a better daughter. You see Christ, you get moralism, but you see moralism, you can miss Christ. So how will your 2013 epitaph read? Will it be just another status quo year of spiritual growth? Well, I tried to grow, but I just kept returning. I just kept returning. I just kept returning. I was thinking about this, and uh, a good illustration popped in my head from the Salem witch trials. Didn't think you'd hear that today. But the Salem witch trials, there was a guy, and they said, that guy's a warlock. And he's really like a farmer. But they dragged him out of his house. They laid him down. They said, he's a wizard. He's a warlock. Kill him. And they put a, stab, a slab of stone on top of him. They said, admit and confess and repent to being a warlock. And he said, I'm not. No. So they put more stones on him and more stones piled high. Stones are piled to here. He's laying flat on this stage. Stones are, and everyone's looking and spitting and yelling at him. His last words were this. They said, repent. Would you admit it? His last words were this. More weight. They put more stones on him, crushed him, suffocated, died. Now, he hadn't done the wrong. But many of us lay there underneath our own sin. And God's saying, I will take the sin. In Micah 7, he says, I'll take the sin and I will hurl it into the depths of the sea. I like to liken that to a stone. The stones that are laying on top of me, he says, I'll take it and I'll throw it into the depths of the sea. And I lay there and I say, more weight. Yeah, Jesus died for that, but more weight. I can do this on my own. I can fix this. I can get out of this. I can work my way out of this. More weight. So what we're going to do now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Or reflect on that moment where Jesus Christ poured out his blood for us and took our sin and nailed it to the cross, became our sin on the cross. We reflect on that, and with that reflection, we're supposed to repent. There's a scene in the New Testament where some people went and took the Lord's Supper uh, with, with lies on their lips and sin in their heart, and God struck them down in the aisle. And I'm not saying that because that should be our motive today. That shouldn't be our heart today. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't repent because of fear of death. We should repent because we want to accept life. He offers to us anew each day through his repentance, through his unending grace, grace upon grace, the Bible tells us. Would you seek out that grace today and become a repenter? And then will you seek that daily until God takes you so that we sound like David at the end of the year? The goal of this time, I want us to think about that Caruso quote. Not ashamed to sin, yet are ashamed to repent. What if we flip that? What if we become more ashamed to sin, but when we do get ensnared by sin, we're not ashamed at all to confess and repent. You confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from every unrighteousness. That's our goal today. Let me pray and let me remind you too that this is a supper for for any believer in Christ to reflect on what Christ has done in your life. This isn't just for Cape Bible Chapel. If your heart belongs to Jesus Christ, let's repent and let's take this with joy. Let's accept what Jesus has given us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Uh, That you, as Ryan said, in your kindness and your compassion, and despite your holiness, Lord, you found a way to reconcile us as sinners and as prideful people to you. And and constantly you give us a conduit to that grace. We draw near to you and, and you'll draw near to us. Well, we do that, Lord, by repenting. We draw near to you, Lord, by becoming more like you. And we do that through making ourselves white like snow as only you can do through your spirit, Lord. Just submitting. As the prodigal son did, he got up out of the pit and he walked to the lane and his father ran down the lane, grabbed him. But he got up and he walked towards home first. Let that walk begin today, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.